Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast. Then I'm Jeff Danielton, the effing librarian. Welcome to the show. This show is about fish, fishing, and eating fish, and anything is fair game. And it's a good bet that you're going to want to read more and talk less after this show. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff, thanks for coming back on. Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, we're going to start off. Chris, going to quickly talk about um, why the show is here. We're going to do a promo for Patreon, which is how our show is funded. And and right now, Jeff, our show is barely, (laughs) but barely 100% funded by Patreon, which means all the costs of producing the show are paid for by the listeners. And that's... That's, That's a, the that, way it should be. It's a big deal. We have zero sponsors right now. We right. had uh, we had one for a little bit. But they went away. Um, they might come back. <laughs> but uh, but right now it's just our listeners sponsoring the show, which is which is great. And if you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/FishNerds, and we're asking all listeners to give a dollar an episode. If you think an hour of entertainment is worth a dollar, that's what we want. And if everyone did that, um, not only could the show be funded, which it, it is, but we could actually get ahead of the game and and do things like pay for travel and buy recording equipment for our correspondents. Like Jeff could use a, an audio recorder, and it'd be nice to be able to mail him one. Um, <laughs> last, yeah. last year, oh, yeah. last year when we got ahead, we mailed Hugo got a recorder. You know, which makes a difference. Um, we're getting a little better quality show. So really, the more people, the better. And uh, we have all kinds of rewards at Patreon and. I'm behind on getting rewards out, so if you are in the queue, I am doing that. I'm going to be on vacation next week, and while I'm on vacation, I'm filling out uh, those, I'm fulfilling those uh, Patreon requests. So, yeah, um, you want to get you some of that effing swag. You got to get your swag. We got nice decals. You can put them on your boats or whatever you happen to put stickers on. So everything, everything deserves a sticker. Everything, everything I have has a fish nerd sticker on it now. It does. It's nice to be branded, but you're branded with a unique, uh, like just a small few of us have those stickers. Right. So, yeah. We're an elite club. Yeah, the effing club. So hey, uh, speaking of fishing, have you been fishing recently? I have been fishing recently. I went uh, carry you fishing oh. with uh, with Chris Stewart, uh, also known as the Tinkara Bomb. I know that and, guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a super nice guy um, and really knowledgeable. And so, Karyu is a Japanese method of bait fishing for trout that's a lot like Tenkara, where you have a rod that just simply has a line tied to the end of it. But at the end of that, instead of a fly, you've got, you know, some tippet, a split shot, a hook, and some bait. And I was using mealworms, and that was the ticket. Mealworms are great. Now, I'm asking a question. What's, what's it called again? Carry you now? Is that new? No, it's been around for a long time well, in Japan, hang on, but hang on but a in second. America, hang on just a second. Very new. Well, here's here's how new it is, uh, because about five years ago, in, in 2011, Dave and I wrote an article about Tenkara fishing for our blog before we were fish nerds. We were catchemall.com, and we had a photo of us with a Tenkara setup with a worm on the end of it, and we got an email from the Tenkara people. I think it was your friend saying that's not Tenkara. <laughs> right. right. And, and, uh, but there was no other name for it, no explanation. And now I hear you guys are doing it together and it makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. He's been trying to, yeah. He's been trying to bring interest about this to the States because it's a super effective way of fishing. It's much more active than just cast out your bait and let it sit on the bottom. That's how I fish you all know? the time. So you're, you're drifting it just like you're drifting a fly. You've got little, 
yarn markers on your line that are super sensitive strike indicators. You don't actually float them on the water like like a regular strike indicator. You actually kind of suspend them above the surface of the water a little bit. And I mean, the minute a fish even like breathes on your hook, you'll see it on those little yarn indicators. And you can set the hook real quick. And that is a big difference in that you don't deep hook fish. No, they're all they're all almost nicely. always lip hooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty amazed. Yeah, no swallowing the bait or anything like that. You hook them just like you would with a fly. Yep. Now I have a, I have one of those rods that's twenty feet long. It's yeah, a I tele- do too. Telescoping and one, and and we were fishing that like that last summer for white perch on a pontoon boat, and it, it is the is such a blast to get a big fish uh, on a rod like that. It's, yeah, it's and, and I actually was using a much a very very light version of one of these things that's really designed for catching very small fish mm-hmm. you know I'm talking like six inch fish and i hooked into a i didn't measure it but a pretty good sized trout and it was a battle for the ages uh, i had to chase it downstream and then try to get it over into the slack water and every time i just about get it into the slack water it'd run back out into the current and so we had a little disagreement for a while about that, but finally got it to the net. And that was a sense of achievement, even though it's maybe like a 12-inch trout, you know. <laughs> uh, it's it's such a blast. Anyone who hasn't done it can't understand it. But, I mean, you don't have a drag. All you have is your rod and a piece of string. Oh, you got the rod. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and that does all the work. Yeah, and there's a there's a technique to playing fish on them where if they start to straighten out your rod, that's when you're in trouble. If they get the rod bent down straight, you're in trouble. And what you need to do is flip the rod over to the side. That puts the bend back in it. Mm -hmm. And then you're flipping it over back and forth and back and forth, kind of tiring the fish out. And eventually you can get them in. Um, This had 7X tippet. So I had to be pretty, couldn't just horse it in. And so between the rod being a really soft rod and the tippet being so fine, it was a heck of a fight. And that that kind of stuff just makes catching the everyday average fish into a real adventure. Yeah, man, it's, and it's just way fun. I mean, that's all it is to it. It's it's fun, and I, I think like if you if you're a pan fisherman, like if you love catching like crappies and bluegills and stuff like that, try that method out. Absolutely, you, you'll give I- up your rod and reel very quickly. Yes, and in fact, uh, Chris Chris now fishes um, worms with a Tenkara rod. So I do that you, too. <laughs> you, did, you did it first, <laughs> yeah. But he actually has started using actual Tenkara rods um, because they cast the line so easily. You don't need any weight, and you can just cast a worm on a hook and drift it. Can't do it in real deep water, but it turns out super effective. And he he kind of enjoys poking at the boundaries of mm-hmm. of what's acceptable in Tenkara and stuff like that. And so, yeah, so, you know, I'm sure it gives him a, a small little feeling of joy when someone is apoplectic that he's using worms with a Tenkara rod. Well, so. they, they should, those people who are apoplectic, you know, they must also be vegans. <laughs> they are so sold on, <laughs> they are so sold on their technique as being, like, special. And it's yeah. not. It's fishing, like, if you were seven... And you had a stick and a piece of string. It's how you would fish. It's a natural, fun, easy way to catch a whole bunch of fish. That's all it it's, is. And they give it a fancy name so they don't feel like little kids with stickers. That's yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's a little, 
the casting motion is yeah you definitely have to practice a little bit to cast but Maybe. the beauty of it is <laughs> the beauty of it is is that a beginner can pick it up so fast whereas regular you know rod and reel fly casting with a heavy line that's not something you just pick it up and immediately know how to do it whereas you can put a takara rod in somebody's hands and in 5 10 minutes have them casting effectively and catching fish and there's just no substitute for especially i work with a scout troop and Kids want to catch fish, and there's bluegill, and I just put one of these things in their hand and put some disposable flies, which I know are going to end up in trees, probably. Probably. And just, you know, put one of those in their hands, and they start catching bluegill, and they're happy. Yeah, and the bluegill don't care what kind of fly you're saying. No, <laughs> no. They, they, they really don't. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they get a little picky, and they won't take top water, but underwater they're not super picky. No, they don't care one bit. Well, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad you're doing that, because... Uh, we need more people fishing in interesting ways. Um, I was I was ice fishing yesterday, and it was eighty degrees outside. That's amazing. Yep, I was the I I, I think Vinny and I well Vinny for sure because uh, I I had to leave before him were the last two people ice fishing in New Hampshire. There could not have been anybody else out there. It was it was crazy. There was still a foot of ice, and to get on the ice, you had to um, you had to walk through about eight inches of water, and then step up on the ice shelf. And as we were coming out, I, Vinny got out before me, and I stepped on the ice shelf, and the ice shelf broke off, and I went in past my boot, so I kind of hopped up out of the water onto the ice and dumped, my, dumped the water on my boot, and I went fishing. And uh, once we got on the ice, we're on a foot of nice, solid, you know, relative safe ice. Yeah. <laughs> Relatively safe. Um, Nick, who's our audio guy um, from the Fish Nerds, he's now starting to do our mixing for our shows again. He was fishing in the same pond, but he would not go on the ice. He was fishing in the open water. On the same pond, because half the pond was 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 open, half the pond was frozen, and uh, he didn't catch anything. But I caught um, my best bass the entire season, which was was a cool way to end the day. And then yeah. um, coming off the ice, uh, it had heated up to over eighty degrees out, and the edges of the ice where it was six inches deep now was at twelve inches deep. <laughs> so, so I you actually were getting wet. I had I had to get in the water and wade off the ice, and both my boots. We're full of ice water. Um, Vinny stayed out for another 25 minutes after I left, and he caught his last bass of the ice fishing season. So we ended really strong. I don't recommend anyone who doesn't know the ice or lakes really, really well to do that. But, man, I'm telling you, Jeff, I don't know if you've ever ice fished before. but I have. But getting on the ice when it's 80 degrees out, so you're out in, in basically a T-shirt, and it's hot. You're uncomfortably hot, and you're catching fish. Through the ice. It's like, yeah, it's like when you catch that very end of the ski season mm -hmm. where, you know, you have these ridiculously warm days, but there's still snow mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be there for the last day of the place being open. I'm going to ski. And that's the story of how I got the single worst sunburn I ever got in my entire life. Yeah. Well, <laughs> people don't remember that the sun <laughs> reflects off and is actually yeah. enhanced almost by that bright snow. So yeah. 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 It reflects off and i had worn a jacket and got hot and took it off, and that was a mistake. And my arms got lobsterized. Uh, are you are you an easy burner? Oh, you know, not terribly, but you know, combine altitude with the reflected, you know, stuff off the snow on a just a cloudless sunny day, and you're gonna fry. Yeah, I went fishing on Sunday. I went, I went ice fishing in the morning, and then I went skiing in the afternoon, and it was 70 degrees out. 
That's a good day. And it was a good day. I didn't catch any fish in the morning, but I definitely got some good sun in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, it was hot. <laughs> but it's it's so fun to like do those winter sports in the late spring and have a good time doing it. Um, so, but we're not here to talk about fishing. It's a fishing podcast, but uh, we're actually here to talk uh, about the FN Book Club. Jeff, you are our FN librarian. And uh, before we get into the founding fish, can you tell us about Goodreads and how people can participate in yeah, the Yeah, I created a Goodreads group, um, and it's called Fish Nerds Book Club. Ah, clever. Yes, very creative. Um, and so I've got up the book that we're discussing right now, and then also, spoiler alert, the next book that we're going to be reading, I've added it in as well. Oh, so all you have to do is look for that on Goodreads, and I have posted a discussion thread for the books, and it's an easy way to participate. Yeah, and we need more people participating in these. Uh, even if you don't have time to read the whole book, if you've read part of the book or you started reading it and got bored, that's valid. You know, your opinion still counts. So uh, feel free to like to participate. The more people who play our games, the, uh, the more fun we have. And it's really yeah. about interaction with the audience, listeners. And if there's books you want us to talk about on the show... Um, we can also include those. We don't have to just do what's Jeff's idea or my idea or whatever famous people call us. Because yeah. we make the show for the, for you guys, our listeners, not for anybody else. So. Absolutely open to suggestions. Yep. But they better be good. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So this week's, um, this month's books was, uh, this month's book was The Founding Fish by John McPhee. And uh, did you read this before you suggested it? Yeah, I had read it again, quite a long time ago. And uh, <clears throat> my original interest in it was is that I did not know really anything about American shad. Being from the Midwest, to me, shad means gizzard shad, which is bait. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you absolutely would not want to eat one. They're slimy, nasty, stinky. They're just gross. But catfish love them, and so do a lot of other fish. Um, but I knew nothing about American Shad, and so I thought, oh, I would read this book, and turned out to be a very well-written book. Um, John McPhee, either like the way he writes or you don't. Right. Um, and I think I saw some of that in some of the discussion about the book. He does tend to meander and mm -hmm. and things like that, but I find I find his books really interesting. He's he's done a lot of uh, writing in, in kind of the, what, what I would call, oh, Natural history sure. or things like that, and actually is a Pulitzer Prize winner for some of his writing about that. Well, he certainly dives deep. Um, and, yes. and before we get into your thoughts and my thoughts on this book, I'm going to tell you a quick story. So about shad. Now, I've, I, I've actually worked in the shad restoration program in New Hampshire, so I already know a lot about them. But um, what I know about fishermen is fishermen misname fish all the time. And someone came to me the other day, I saw uh, uh, the other day, they said, hey, Clay, I hear that when the shad run in, the, uh, in Conway Lake ends, the salmon bite starts. And I said, what are you talking about? Because this is a lake that's up in New Hampshire, and there's, there's no American shad in that water right. body. And so I had to like do some digging to find out what was he talking about when he said shad. Do you know what he meant? Alewives? Nope. The There's no smell? alewives. There's no, and it could have been smelled. I think more likely. Uh, now, shad. If you look, at, think about Rapala has a has a lure called a shad wrap. 
Yeah. I think shad to a lot of people is just whatever bait fish happens to spawn early springtime. So I think right. I think it's fall fish, golden shiners, things of that nature. Um, people call shad. And I, I'm, I don't think they mean to do it on purpose, but it's just whatever they happen, that's the name they have for it. So Yeah. Well, but, and the reason that those shad wraps look the way they do is the gizzard shad, the threadfin shad, which are related to the American shad. Sure. Um, and actually, gizzards a shad can get fairly good size, but you rarely ever catch one on a hook and line. Yeah, and I, well, I, I have, and, yeah, and I've eaten, I've have, and I've eaten them. Yeah, so. you ate it. Yeah, so please you, tell me it tasted like you, it tasted like shad. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it, it wasn't it bad. Smells. They were big. It, just they based were... on the smell to me and the sliminess of them. Yeah, because I've netted many, 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 many gizzard shad with one of those cast nets. Well, how, for, how big are your gizzard shad? Well, they can grow quite big as they mature. They can get, say, like a, a foot plus long, but you rarely you rarely encounter those. They tend to stay deep and aren't... The only time you ever really see them in close is sort of around the spawning time. Most of the time what you see is the kind of the young of the year. Mm-hmm. Which are just a few inches long. Yeah. Now, unless and, I'm unless I'm my memory is, is faulty, um, they were they they actually mix uh, in in with the American shad run, and they could be anadromous on the East Coast. And unless I'm I'm wrong, so if I'm wrong, please someone jump. That come, might be a let me know. Shad. Maybe it's hickory shad. I saw there was another shad that ran with the American shad a few years ago. This is just like twenty years ago, and they have like this like long fin that kind of crosses over their back. Maybe it yeah. is a hickory shad I'm thinking of. Now I have to look it up. Yeah, there's all kinds of different shad. Yeah. Um, there's the there's even some down like there's an al- a subspecies of I think it may be hickory shad or it's very closely related that's endemic to Alabama that's now kind of a little bit endangered. They're all kind of in the same kind of herringish type family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the American shad really is in the hickory shad are really the only two major game fish in the group. Right. And now looking at the photos of the gizzard shad, it was a gizzard shad. So, oh, I can't believe you ate it. Yeah, so they had that dorsal fin, and there's like this long, like almost like one long dorsal hair, it looks like, that goes down yeah. their back. And I'm a I'm a pretty adventurous eater, uh-huh. and I still, I've, I've handled so many gizzard shad, and I've got that smell imprinted in yeah. my, just in my DNA from, that's, a very popular catfish bait here. And also if you're fishing for stuff like striped bass or the hybrid um, striped bass, the wipers. Wipers. That's a super popular bait. All oh, those are the greatest. Those are one of the greatest fish ever. Um, but, yeah, you go out and net these shad and you end up with just this shad slime everywhere. And they just, they smell funky and I can't imagine eating one. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there it is. So, um I can't. I was in my twenties. Who knows? And my and my memory may be faulty. So, but I, I'm ninety percent sure I ate one. Um, but uh, we had a so so uh, one of our readers has called into the Fish Nerds hotline to give his opinion. I thought well, let's start with start with his opinion before we give our opinion on this book. Okay, that'd be great. All right, so I'm going to play that now. Hey nerds, it's Rich Collins here. I'm calling in about the Shad FM Book Club Shad book. I did have the pleasure of um, listening to it on audio, and there were a few really interesting points I'd like to make. Um, In particular, what really fascinated me was this guy that goes out and builds these, um, I don't know if they were fife nets or weirs or what, out of wood. 
um, it literally goes out and builds these these nets made of um, timber, which was really interesting, and then takes them down. Um, fascinating way to catch fish. Um, secondly, it was really interesting to me that in times of war, uh, the troops would try to strangle each other out by cutting off the food supply, which was shad. So these fish were actually a a, uh, a weapon in a way, or preventing the fish was a weapon, which is fascinating. Um, I found it really interesting that that this was um, kind of a slave food for um, them to go out and catch when they were, you know, in under captivity of their owners, but they were allowed to go out and catch shad for their own meals. Um, terrible to think about slavery, but fascinating to think about these things and how this plays into history. Hard to talk about. And then uh, on a more practical note, I really enjoyed how um, they talked about how shad's eyes are really sensitive to light and why, which explains a lot about some of their migration and their hurdles to migration, um, particularly here on the east coast, northeast, where they're, they hardly exist anymore. So um, lots of interesting points, lots of history. Um, I'm a more practical guy. I like practical things, but um, it was good to get into, and now I'm going to go out and fish for shad in a week. All right. Take care, nerds. Jeff, it's gonna Jeff, it's gonna make you crazy in about two weeks when the shad run starts here in New Hampshire, and I start sending you photos every day of shad. I was so absorbed with salmon and steelhead and trout when I lived in um, Washington, which they get a big run up the Columbia. Mm -hmm. it wasn't even on my radar. I just was. It was all about the salmon, all about the steelhead, all about the trout. And I could have been in the largest shad run on the planet, completely off my radar. Yep, shad heaven. Yeah. Uh, so, so this book kind of starts out, and when you when you first get into it, it's all about fishing for shad on the Delaware. That's, that's the opening. Yeah. And it, immediately reading it, it reminded me that I, as all my times working on the river with shad, I did not fish for them nearly enough. Um, I've caught them, but I've not, I didn't really dig into it. And I wish I had been motivated more when I lived right next door to the Shad Runs to get into it. Um, but reading it, it makes you really, really want to want to fish for these fish. Is that your takeaway? Oh, yeah. And they're a, a spectacular game fish. You know, I guess pound for pound, it's one of the fightingest fish you're going to hook into. Um, and also good to eat, which, you know, I've never had the, especially smoked Shad is a delicacy, which is something that kind of evolved over time. Like uh, like Rich was saying, early on it was considered either slave food or poor people food, and you know it wasn't considered a, de a delicacy. But as time has gone on, it has turned out to be, you know, very highly esteemed not only as a sport fish but as a food fish. And the other interesting thing is is that when you're fishing for shad, they're not feeding. No. And so you're basically getting reaction strikes. Something gets in the fish's face. It doesn't like what it sees. Something about your lure bothers it. And the only way a fish can do anything about it is go bite it. Right. And that's and the case. So, that's the case with lots of with migratory fish that are on the way to their spawning grounds. They're, they're not. They've already gorged themselves in the ocean. In their job now, get to the spawning grounds, make babies. So that's exactly just don't right. Eat. Yeah, um, and and with this uh, now, I by the way, I found John McPhee to be very wordy. I think this book could have been half the length, uh, and 
been just yeah. as good, but that's my opinion. And I, I was listening, I, I read part of it and then I had to read the audio book to kind of get further through it. And I still didn't finish the whole thing. I got about 90% done this afternoon. Um, but what I liked about it was the back and forth from his actual fishing experience to the history, both natural history and history of the United States with that fish and how it impacted American history. I really loved hearing the impacts of Shad on the Revolutionary War. And then, and then really, um, being from New England, we all think salmon were once abundant uh, in New England, uh, learning that salmon were not <laughs> abundant because they, they did all these studies on bones, digging up bones of fish and finding out what lived here, and they didn't find salmon. You know, which is yeah, in fact, that a lot of what people might have been calling salmon were actually shad. They just said, well, it's a it's an anadromous fish coming up the river. It must be some kind of salmon. Um, I think maybe they called it white salmon. That's right. If I, re- if I remember exactly right, the wording in the book. But yeah. And the other thing that I think this book covers. Yeah, it's it's different than the first book. Um, you don't get the sense from Cod that Mark Karolansky has ever gone out and fished for cod. No, the love of the fishing didn't exist in the Karolansky book. That no, he's, he's sure. purely interested in it as a, you know, as a food, as a resource of, you know, the management issues and things like that, the history. But you don't get a sense that Mark Karolansky has ever fished for cod. Whereas if you take this book to be an accurate depiction of john mcphee i'd say the guy's kind of a shad maniac uh yeah shad nerd Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's a shad nerd um and so you know he's writing like you said it's a it alternates back and forth between his experiences his fishing you know his friends you know the relationships he's built while fishing for shad and then the history and there's the whole debate about whether it was actually an early shad run that saved them at Valley Forge, that they were starving. Well, let's talk about that, because that, that, I, I thought that was my favorite part of the whole book. So let's so yeah. in Valley Forge, it was an especially harsh winter, and George Washington was trying to lead you know, the military, um, the army, and winter was dragging on and on and on. They were out of food and clothing. Um, they do a great job describing early bureaucracy, where where George Washington wrote some 30,000 letters yeah. <laughs> like requesting supplies. Uh, and then, and then, so the oral history is the shad run sh- showed up, everyone feasted on shad and they were strong and healthy and ready to win the revolutionary war. Right. But then right. the book takes that and it goes for the science. Is there evidence that that shad run really saved the day? And, and, yeah. and, and yeah, so go ahead. The science is pretty, pretty conclusive that, it didn't happen. Spoiler. That way. Well, yeah. and and, th- and it was fascinating because there are people whose job it is to dig through the trash of these old camps and find the bones and then do DNA studies on the bone to find out what people have been eating. And it turns out in that case, it was not shad. It wasn't fish yeah. even. They found one shad bone in the whole mess of bones. They didn't, they didn't find deer or rabbit either, which I thought was also interesting. <laughs> Because they were ignoring the local natural food. And that, and well, they may have eaten that all. That stuff probably didn't last very long once the whole army showed up and didn't really have much to eat. I have to imagine that the surrounding countryside became rapidly depleted of basically anything you could eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine it would it would do that. They'd eat everything. But it's funny, if, we, if you flash back to the McPhee book, the, the Cod book, 
you would think co- like cod was being imported to all these war sites, <laughs> but right. I didn't see that either yeah. in this. Like it would kind of feel it felt like two different stories of the same time period. Yeah. Um, oh no, I the, think mainly, the cod one was Civil War, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and the cod was a was a sea fishery at sea fishery, and I have to imagine that naval operations during the Revolutionary War probably made it difficult to go out and. Mm. I'm sure the British probably said, well, we'll keep them from eating cod. Oh, they probably shut down by, the cod grounds. Yeah, we'll just go camp out on the cod grounds with some warships, and there you go. Right. Now, there were, that's there, supposition. And now, there were accounts of the British dragging nets across the mouse rivers to keep the shad run from happening. Right. To try and Actually, starve out think, the troops. Yep. Yeah. Deny them their food source, and an army travels on its stomach. And so, yeah, the, the attempt to cut off the shad flow... Although I don't think they were ever very successful at it. Well, those rooms are so big. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. what, what both books had in common was rum. Uh, yes. Lots of rum was drunk. <laughs> so there's that, you know. Yeah, and I, I just find the whole, the whole concept of the anadromous fish as sort of, again, they're one of those canaries in a coal mine mm-hmm. type things. Um, you know, kind of that you can kind of measure the health of a, of a, say like a watershed if it has an andromous fish in it by how successful those are and we've done a lot to make things hostile to an andromous fish we have and the uh, and the biggest thing though isn't pollution it's it's dams yes dams are are a major problem yeah it is the the biggest hurdle so to speak <laughs> for them to deal with yeah and he he devotes a whole chapter to or maybe more to the removal of a dam I don't think I got that far. Yeah, and he actually goes <laughs> and after they remove the dam, he and a friend go canoe the section of the river that was now exposed back down to its natural state. Um, well, as natural as it can be, obviously, there have been lots of siltation and things like that. But, you know, they're like, we're going to be the first people down this this uh, newly restored river um, after they removed a dam. And yeah, that's a big deal with shad on the on the on the east coast. Uh, anadromous fish on the west coast. The steelhead, the salmon runs majorly impacted by dams, um, especially on the Columbia and Snake system. Well, it's it's really uh, all of them. Um, the in New Hampshire now we've been removing dams. We just took out a dam in Exeter, <clears throat> New Hampshire, where Dave Kellum, um, former fisher, lives, and he photo- put photos up today of that. River running free. So this year will be the first year that Herring and Shack can run that river um, unimpeded, at least for the first, you know, I forget how many miles it is, but they can essentially get to their spawning grounds without a fish ladder, which will be really fun to see how they do. But it's, it's remarkable how fast rivers come back um, after you take a dam out. It's really proving to be worth uh, getting rid of the dams. Yeah, yeah. And that's a major battle that's going on, on out west. I know that... that... Having lived out there, the debate over the the dams on the Columbia River, and especially there's four dams on the Snake River mm-hmm. um, that are just basically useless. Um, they generate some electricity, but not a lot. And they've cut off just thousands of miles of potential sp- spawning habitat. And uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who like to see those go. Ironically, the shad found a new home on the West Coast. And actually, if you really want to see huge numbers of shad, that's where you need to go. 
Really? Just go out. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are huge runs in San Francisco Bay area, um, most of the Oregon coastal rivers, and there's an it, absolutely is that Enormous the same? Run. Is that the same shad? Uh, it's sa- the same shad. Lasso Sabatissima. The yes, the delicious fish. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, somebody in the 1800s, and forgive me, I can't remember the name from the book, but yeah, transported shad, fertilized shad eggs across the United States, and I believe dumped them into the San Francisco Bay. Oh, hey, fun fact. To uh, transport live shad, your truck, ha- your 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 tank has to be circular. Yeah, because they'll bang into the wall. They'll just bang into the wall until they die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's the it, same way with gizzard shad. Yeah, in the springtime every year in New Hampshire, you can watch the uh, shad mobiles drive up and down uh, the Merrimack River um, with with truckloads of shad dumping them up and down the streams. So. Yeah, but <clears throat> the the shad spawning requirement isn't as isn't as exacting as say salmon or steelhead True. and so while the salmon and steelhead on the west coast have have really dwindled shad have really really exploded in population and so the world's largest shad run runs up the columbia river and it's it dwarfs anything on the east coast that's amazing because uh, I've seen some big shad runs on the East Coast. I, I'm amazed by that concept. It, now people focus heavily on the salmon run still because salmon is the public fish. It's the the right. fish that attracts funding and dollars. New Hampshire canceled their Atlantic salmon program uh, three years ago, so we no longer are working towards restoration of the Atlantic salmon. But uh, we are focused heavily now on the herring and shad and sea lamprey runs. Uh, and the public started to come along with us finally to to see the value in these fish and see how how cool they are, so which is kind of neat to see. Yeah, anadromous fish are amazing. Their ability to just essentially change body chemistry from that transition to salt water to fresh water. Um, it it's an amazing strategy. You go out to the ocean; that's where all the food is. But then you come back to these streams where you can have your you know, where you can reproduce, where your your young will be protected from the harsh world of the ocean somewhat. where things get eaten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somewhat. But, I, you know, just a few percentage points makes a difference. It sure does. Um, it sure and does. So, and so that strategy of go to sea to get big, come back to spawn, um, you know, it's cropped up quite a few times in different fish fish lineages. And uh, it's, it's evolutionary, evolutionarily very interesting. Right. If you can call evolutionary a genius activity, it's that. <laughs> it's yeah. Really, yeah. It's really a great adaptation. Um, now, so, so we only have a minute more on, on this discussion, but what's the biggest takeaway from this book? What are, you, what are you bringing home from this? Well, you know, for me, really, I think what, what drew me to it and what I like about it is just his his love of the fishing yeah, the joy um yeah he just derives a, a, an immense amount of joy from both catching and eating shad um you know he he is not a pure catch and release fisherman he is eating those shad and you know he he loves this fish he loves this fishery you know he'll fish for other things but it's shad that's what's on his mind most of the time and that's that's fish nerd behavior it totally is and know? and he actually logged <laughs> 
he logged, he compared the amount of hours shad fishing with what like a pilot would spend learning to fly. Yeah. You know, like that level of nerdiness. And my big takeaway on this is I want to catch a shad and I want to butterfly it. I want to nail it to a piece of oak um, rudder and smoke it over a fire. Yes, absolutely. Here's the, I'm going to give you the recipe. This is the recipe. You got to find an old oak rudder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then you catch a shad, uh, a, a big one butterfly it which means split down the middle uh nail it to that board and then and then rub it in oil and salt and pepper that's it and then put it over the fire but not over the heat just over the smoke until it's cooked through and that's it and that's apparently delicious and i've not done it that way and if i get a shad this year that's exactly what i'm going to do yeah so now except not the rudder Right. (laughs) Yeah, you might have to look around for a little bit for that, for the old oak rudder. He said um, in that one town that became so popular that people were stealing rudders off of boats. Off the boats, I don't believe that for a second, but I I believe that to be the story, you know. You know, fishermen's tales. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's the founding fish. Um, If you've read the book and you want to revisit this conversation, we're on Goodreads. You also can join us on Facebook for this conversation, or you can call the Fish Nerds Hotline. 607-378-FISH, and we can always revisit this conversation if you want to add to it or you want to get your voice heard. We always play um, all of our listeners' voices. We try to get them on the show as much as possible. So, wow. So that's a, that's great. And again, I didn't finish the book. I, I'm going to finish it. I'm driving to South Carolina in two days. And I'll that's audio book. That's audio book time. It's audio book time, and I'm going to get through it. Um, I actually felt like it was three different books, <laughs> so yeah, it could have been broken yeah. up. Yeah, like a how to catch shad book, how, how and why, and the history of the United States and shad, and then a cookbook. So yeah, yeah. But so next up, we are going to talk about what's next for the Effin Book Club. Now this is only our second Effin Book Club, and we've already been on the radar of major publishing houses. So I know we've. We've hit the big time. We've hit the big time. So I got it. This actually happened this afternoon. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Like at three o'clock this afternoon, I think I emailed you right away. Simon and Schuster yeah. called me up and said, Hey, Clay, we have a new book. Can we send you some copies? And can you talk about it on your show? And I thought, Yes. <laughs> so absolutely. Yeah. So the book we're going to be talking about next month is by John Garrick. And you've heard of John before, right? Oh, yeah. I've read several of his books. Yeah, most of us have. And he's written for a bunch of magazines, other publications. Uh, they call him the voice of the common angler and member of the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. He brings his sharp sense of humor and keen eye for observation to the fishing life, and for that matter, life in general. Um, the, the book is called A Fly Rod of Your Own. It uh, just came out April 4th, so it's fresh and new. You can get it on Amazon or wherever your books are found. or are they in libraries yet? Do you think? Um, they should be soon. They should be uh, soon. Yeah, the libraries lag just a little bit behind what gets on bookshelf. Sure, uh, on bookshelf. Let me spit this out. Yeah. Bookstore shelves, mm-hmm. um, and that's largely because the the way that the library vendor process works, it, it just runs a little bit behind. So, but they should be showing up real soon. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you the description of the book. Uh, Garrick, once again, takes us into his world and scrutinizes the art of fly fishing, which I'm happy to see scrutinizing happening uh, of, of arts like this. He travels to remote fishing locations where, he, where the airport is not much bigger than a garage 
and a flight might be held up because a passenger is running late. He sings the praises of the skilled pilots who fly to remote fishing lodges in tricky locations and bad weather. He explains why even the most veteran fisherman seems to muff his cast whenever he's filmed or photographed. He describes the all but impassable roads that fishermen always seem to encounter at the best fishing spots and why fishermen discuss four-wheel drive vehicles almost as passionately and frequently as they discuss rods and flies. And there's a bunch more, but um, we are actually in talks with getting John on the show as well. So this is a good one to uh, get the book and read it and give your thoughts. Um, Simon and Schuster is paying attention and they are in, uh, I said I'd like to interview John, and they are trying to work that out for us. And we're going to be giving a book away, um, and I'm not sure how to do that yet, but um, Jeff and I will come up with, with a plan, and we will give a copy away. Um, Jeff's getting a copy for himself. I'm also getting one, and I'm going to give my copy away after I'm done reading it, so we'll have two copies at least to give away. Yeah, so definitely I will donate mine to the cause. So we'll give three copies of this book away. Um, after the next FN book club, which will happen sometime in May. I don't have a date yet for it um, because uh, we get very, very busy coming up here. Um, Jeff, I know as the show is starting to really get full of ideas uh, coming up. Um, so um, I actually have an interview, um, another co new correspondent. <laughs> she went fishing with um, a person who chartered fished with Martin Luther King. And she interviewed that person. That's coming up on future shows. We've got the all kinds of correspondents around the world making stories for us. I'm going to South Carolina. I'm also going to the Virginia Aquarium in a month to uh, judge their seafood festival and do some speaking gigs down there. Can't believe I'm, getting, I'm flying to Virginia Beach on their dime, um, yeah. which is amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I'll, you're going to be speaking at a what a brewery? I, speaking at a brewery, and so yes. so the the so I mean I'll, I'll plug this so. The Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Center um, has asked me to come down and judge their sustainable seafood festival in May, the end of May, last week of May, um, the week before, right before um, Memorial Day. And so they're they're flying me down. They're putting me in a big fancy pants hotel, and I'm going to present to their their people down there. And then um, I'm doing an in-store appearance at a Whole Foods, <laughs> which is crazy. Um and then at a brewery who brews beer just for the aquarium, it's for the sustainable fish. So I'm going to do that. Um, and then I'm doing some like lunch and learn sessions where I'm going to be doing some work with their biologist on fishy communications and stuff like that. And then I'm judging the seafood festival, which is uh, going to be amazing. I'll put links up at fishnerds.com. But basically, all the restaurants at Virginia Beach have gone to focus on making food, seafood sustainable. And I'm going to be... Uh, judging it, and the goal this year is no waste. So no paper plates, no plastic, no plastic cups, no garbage. That's the goal. So I, I'd be amazing what people come up with. Yeah, and the the looking for underutilized fish species that are just everywhere. Like and, gizzard chat. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know about the gizzard <laughs> chat. I am going to go on a quest to catch the uh, silver and big head carp around here. And uh, supposedly pretty good eating. And so well, you may hear something from me about that in the future. This is a, kind of a future project I've got brewing. But, yeah, they it's an invasive species here. They're everywhere. Um, <clears throat> they're much like Chad. They're plankton feeders, so they're, they can be tricky to catch. 
but I'm going to figure out how to do it and yep. then I'm going to eat it and I will report back on those results. Yeah, you should. Now, are those the ones that jump out of the water when the boats drive past them? Yes, they do. So you can bow hunt. You can bow hunt for them, right? Yes, and in fact, I believe in Peoria, there's a group of guys that go out on water skis with like samurai swords. I've seen and, those videos. Yeah. yeah, and and they even have a game called scarping where they ride on wakeboards, I think, and they've mm-hmm. got an inner tube between them with a basketball goal in yep, it, and they saw that. go with nets and they catch the carp in the air, and you get a point by dumping the cart through the basketball net into the into the tube. Yeah, and I have such mixed feelings about all that stuff. You know, it, it, on one hand, it looks really fun. I can see why you get into it. On the other hand, it's it's not nice. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. A, I, I would prefer that those fish get eaten. I do understand that they're a seriously invasive species, and they they have the potential to really disrupt the food chain. Absolutely. But if you look at the history, why were they brought to the United States to begin with? They were put in aquaculture ponds and they got out. Is that the case? I know with the common carp, yep. they were brought here as food fish. Yeah. Actually, um, the, so. yeah, the, the silver carp and the big head carp were put into fish farm ponds because they basically clean them up. And there was a flood. They ended up in, and I believe this was in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up into the Mississippi-Missouri River system. And since then... I have seen that just in the time that I've been back here in Missouri, I've seen the explosion happen um, Mm. to where occasionally you'd see one to now. There's at certain times they will congregate. And it's like in the passage of the book Cod where they said, well, you could walk across the backs of them. Mm -hmm. That's pretty close to what it's like sometimes when these silver carp and big head carp in certain places. Well, I say catch them and eat them. If they're good to eat, you should totally be eating them, unless they're full of mercury or something. So No, that's the good thing about them, is they're primarily plankton feeders, so they're not bioaccumulating. Oh, so go and, for it. Oh, I can't wait to yeah. hear a report on that one. Yeah, and I'm going to make it double hard by trying to do it by fly fishing for them. So. Why not? Just put a piece of plankton yeah. on a tenkara rod and go nuts. You know, see what you're Well, doing. tenkara <laughs> rod means broken rod. With that, we're going to... We're going to be using either, we're going to start out with like a saltwater fly rod. Get a Tenkara <laughs> broomstick. I, yeah, well, I've got a, <laughs> a Japanese carp rod, which is designed, it's much like a Tenkara rod in that it, you just tie the line to the end. But it's much, much sturdier. Um, and so we'll start out with the saltwater fly rod trying to catch these things. And then if I'm successful with that, then we'll move on to the fixed line rod. But uh yeah, we'll start out with the saltwater fly rod. Oh, fantastic. Can't wait. Hey, how about some fish in the news? I love fish in the news. This is my favorite fish nerds segment. Ben. I've always loved it. That's why I'm always sending you stories. Yeah, and I use them. <laughs> yeah, and how about our new theme song for the fish in the news? You like that? I did like that. Yeah, that was by Diana's Bath Salts. It's a local band up here, the third best band on Town Hall Road. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. So first story we have um, is not about fish. A genetic oddity may give octopuses and squids their smarts. And this is in the New York Times. I love when the New York Times does, does stories about you know, the oceans. It's fantastic. Uh, 
Coleod cephalopods, a group of encom- a group encompassing octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish, are the most intelligent invertebrates. Octopuses can open jars. Squids communicate with their own Morse code, and cuttlefish start learning to identify prey when they're just embryos. In fact, coleoids are the only animal lineage that has really achieved behavioral sophistication other than vertebrates, said Joshua Rosenthal, a senior scientist at Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The sophistication could could be related to a quirk on how their genes work. According to a new research from Dr. Rosenthal, a biophysicist at Tel Aviv University, I keep saying names here, uh, in the Journal of Cell on Thursday, there's, there's a journal called Cell. It's the most boring name ever. The scientists make journals are like that. <laughs> I know. The scientists reported that octopuses and squid and cuttlefish make extensive use of RNA editing, a genetic process thought to have little functional significance in the most in most other animals to diversify proteins in their nervous system. And natural selection seems to have favored RNA editing in coleoids, even though it potentially slows the DNA-based evolution, blah, blah, blah. So this goes on for a long time. Uh, but then they found that coleoids have tens of thousands of so-called recording, recording sites where RNA editing results in a protein different from what is initially encoded by the DNA. When they applied the same methods to the two less sophisticated mollusks, a nautilus and a sea slug, they found that the RNA editing levels were ordered in a magnitude lower. So they did a little experiment comparing the sea slugs, like other invertebrates, with these octopuses, and they just found that it didn't work out the same. The RNA was different in these guys. Researchers compared the RNA recording sites between the octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish, and found that they shared tens of thousands of sites to varying degrees. By comparison, humans and mice share only about 40 recording sites. So recording sites. So these were very similar animals in a lot of way. Um, I, I, I love looking at, at the, how smart octopuses are. They're amazingly smart. They're really um, cool. And that's why they make terrible aquarium pets. They because they escape? <laughs> they will find a way out of your aquarium. Have you had them in an aquarium? Um, a friend has had saltwater aquariums, yeah, and you just don't even... You need to think like you have Houdini in the water because they will find a way out. And unfortunately, then sometimes they don't find a way back in, and then you find a uh, dried octopus on your floor that probably cost you a lot of money. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, they're very, very clever. Yeah. Now, we a couple weeks ago on the show, we talked about how some don't eat octopus because of how smart they are. How do you feel about that? Well, I eat bacon and pigs are really smart. Yeah, um, that's the case we made. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just don't want to get to know the pig, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, please don't make me feel too attached to this pig because right. the, that's where bacon comes from. It's um, yes, it's delicious. Um, maybe there's a correlation between how how smart something is and how good it tastes. Um, I believe that babies don't taste good, according that's, to the podcast. So, that's what um, Zoe said, yeah. That's they're right. Because they're not so smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're not smart, so they don't taste good. Um, yep. But yeah, it, it's it's an ethical question about eating things that are that are smart. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us would probably draw the line at something like a great ape. Um, you would. You know. Yeah. Bleeding heart <laughs> liberal. Now, yeah. um, now it's interesting because Hugo, um, our fishing, co- our food correspondent, has been eating octopus like every day this week. 
Oh, I've eaten I've eaten it too. I really like it. It's yeah. good. I, I I've never had octopus I like to eat. And so I am I'm in the camp where we just don't bother. But I know if I guess if it's sustainable and it's in good numbers, go for it. I just I'm not gonna do it. So, yeah. And not because yeah. they're smart either. But that might have a little bit to do with it. It might play a role. You know? <laughs> like I don't eat I don't eat reptiles very often either. And it might be because I just really like them a lot too. And I like fish. Yeah, if I didn't eat things but, I liked, yeah, I'd be hard. I'd be hard up because I really like fish. Yeah, I like yeah. fish too, but it's a different kind of liking. I don't know what it is. Like I'm, I'm not into eating frogs and salamanders, but, but, but fish, I really like everything about them, including eating them. And I can't, I can't make a good case for it. Now I'm, now I'm discussing it out loud. I'm, maybe I should give up food entirely. Yeah. Well, at some point, I want to get around to in the book club of, of being a, a major devil's advocate, stir the pot. Um, the book, uh, I believe it's called do fish feel pain. Oh, which I think makes a pretty is, is arguing that we shouldn't catch and eat fish because they do feel pain. I've corresponded with the author of that book and I'd love and, to get him on the show. He hasn't answered those emails back. He's, re- yeah. he's, he's emailed me about why we should not eat him, but he's not responded to, Hey, you want to come on the show and share your story? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I think it's 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 interesting. I want to know more. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to. I used to be a scientist. I used to be a chemist. That's why this article was so fascinating to me because I worked in kind of the intersection of organic chemistry and biochemistry, but especially involving DNA and RNA and stuff like that. And this this article about the about the octopuses and the RNA editing is really fascinating. Um, because they've taken a completely different approach to um, adaptation than most other animals. They're doing it on the fly. They're literally, as the animal is there in the environment, you know, editing this stuff. But I know about confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. which is you only want to believe what reinforces your already existing beliefs. Which is normal. Like, that's that's human behavior. Yeah, and so I think we should. I really think we should read that book, if, if nothing else, to understand where the other side is coming from. Yeah, well, it's funny because I, I deal with a, I have a local protester, um, and I try to, to empathize. And, and you know, I, I'm not talking to her anymore because she's compared me to a child kidnapper. But, um, but I try to empathize. Like, if you really believe these things are true, then let's, let's have that conversation and see, see where, you're, where you're coming from. It'd be very nice to understand it. So I'd love to get that guy on the show um, if he'd answer my emails. Um, <laughs> but like I yeah. said, but, but, but he, but so far what I'm hearing is people want to say their point and don't want debate. And I, by the way, um, if I did have him on the show, I wouldn't argue with him. I, I just listen and let yeah. him, let him I'd tell like the, to hear story. the case. Yeah. yeah. Make your case. That's why I'd like to do the book. Yeah. Let's do it. Put it on the list and we'll get him on the show. Well, it's already on the list. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, did you know youthful poo makes aged fish live longer? That's a therapy. I'm getting older, but that's a therapy I don't think I want to try. I, you know, I heard this on NPR a few years ago that like there's a, there's actually a thing where humans are doing poop transplants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about that. That's, yeah. yeah, have you when you when did you when you did it last? Um, tell me about how it was. Uh, what a poop transplant. Yeah, how was your poop transplant? Uh, I haven't had one, but I know about. Yeah, my my question is: Do they remove the peanuts first? 
<laughs> and the corn. And the corn. Nah, he went there. <laughs> this is from uh, Scientific American. Even they are doing stories on poop, so don't blame the fish nerds. Uh, <laughs> it may not be the most appetizing way to extend life, but researchers have shown for the first time that older fish live longer after they consumed microbes from the poo of younger fish. The findings were posted to the uh, biorxiv.org preprint server on March 27th. Uh, this, is, this is good news. Uh, so-called young blood experiments that join the circulatory systems of two rats, one young and the other older, found that the factors coursing through the veins of younger ones can improve the health and longevity of older animals. But the new first-of-its-kind study examined the effects of transplanting gut microbes on longevity. This is very exciting news. So basically, uh, poop is the fountain of life. Yeah, that's essentially what a what the human fecal transplant is, is that uh, somebody's lost their their gut biome and need a new one and there's an easy way to do that and so i guess the fish are basically kind of diying it they are now they did the study on killifish which by the way is a whole family of of top minnows there's not just one <laughs> species of killifish but uh this article says life is the fle- is fleeting for killifish one of the shortest lived vertebrates on earth i did not know that the fish hits its sexual maturity at three weeks old just like me, and dies within a few months. <laughs> uh, that's that's a short lifespan. That's why I can't catch them. Uh, the turquoise killifish um, that they studied in the lab inhibits the ephemeral ephemeral. I can't. What is that word? Ephemeral. Ephem- ephemeral. Thank you. Ponds. I'm glad you're literate. Uh, that form during the rainy seasons in in Zimbabwe. Uh, previous studies have hinted at a link between the microbiome and aging in a range of animals. As they age, humans and mice tend to lose some of the diversity of their microbiomes, develop a more uniform community of gut microbes, with once rare pathogenic species rising to dominate in older individuals. So they're saying, like, as you get older, the diversity goes away, and that diversity limits your ability to fight off diseases, and you end up with, like, this imbalance, which makes you sick. The same patterns hold true for killifish, but it makes sense to study a short-lived fish just like that, because... With them dying so fast. Now, some killifish, they by the way... They get results fast. Yeah. Now, some killifish live for a long time. You look at, like... Um, uh, I, I can visualize the killifish. It went to the moon. What's the fish that went to the moon? Is it the mummy chog? The mummy chog went to the moon. Now, that's in the killifish family. That's still a top minnow. They live a lot longer. They can burrow in the mud, and they can hibernate and deal with hot weather. But I guess this species is very short. Yeah, um, there are some that are very adapted to living in these transient... Pools. I know this from having been in the aquarium hobby at one time, and um, yeah, they don't live very long. They can be, they can be just gorgeous, amazingly beautiful fish that live three months and die. Um, and literally, they ship. If you want them, they ship you the eggs that are just like on some damp moss, some and life you throw it in an aquarium, and you get these beautiful fish, and then they die in three months that's the perfect pet for kids i'm gonna tell you why because kids kids focus on animals on pets is three months long yeah so if you get them a pet that dies in three months you get all the joy of a pet without the long term now i'm dad i gotta take care of your fish for you right it's perfect yeah, i see a business opportunity every everything. kid needs a killifish 
That's the new thing. Mail That's order the killifish. New thing. Yep. Mail order killifish. Yep. Three it's months. The new sea monkeys. It is. Oh, you know what we can do? We can do like a like like one of those like um monthly book clubs or whatever, like you know, the the mystery tackle box right. model. Every every three months, you get a box with an animal that's going to die in three months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this week what it might be killifish. Are you getting this week? Right. This oh week? yeah, the green killifish. And the next week might be the banded killifish. And the week after, you know, something else that dies fast. And then the kids get to learn about life and death and life cycles without all the boredom of an animal that lives like twelve years, like a dog. Right. It's perfect. Where they, where they begged and said they'd take care of the dog. Oh, I'll do everything. I'll take care of the dog. And a few days later, you're taking care of the dog. Exactly. My my daughter just got a um, a bearded dragon, which she's very proud of. But every morning, I'm making salad for the bearded dragon. And I'm handing it <laughs> mealworms, and I'm doing all the care. So it's already happening. She loves it, but I do the work. Um, but back to the story real quick. Um, we're going to wrap this up. The um, the microbes get transplanted into the guts of the killifish, a 60-week-old fish if it's given young um, killifish microbiomes, it actually starts resembling a six-week-old fish. So it really is a fountain of youth. It really is working. So that's cool. <laughs> it also boosts their immune system, right? Right, yeah. That's, that's actually the, the whole logic behind probiotic foods for people. It is. Now, uh, if you haven't met anyone on a probiotic diet, I can't say anybody yeah, that's strictly well, they're, probiotic. They're uh, so anyway, don't do it. <laughs> There's no joy in <laughs> life anymore. <laughs> All yogurt. Uh, I like sauerkraut. I do too, and kimchi. Uh, I've never had kimchi. It's spicy, Perfect. Scott. Well, I do it's like spicy. it. Now, do you it's know, have you ever lit up a pickle? Yeah, so you can do sauerkraut too. So yeah. you just take two two wires... Put them, yeah. put some nails on them, stick them in the sauerkraut, plug it in the wall, and it lights right up. It's amazing. Just as fun as pickles. <laughs> All right. So that's fish in the news. We're going to move forward. We're running out of time today. We have a really important special announcement from Doc Martin. She called in this afternoon, and, and she just wants to talk about her big, exciting publication. She's been published. And now, Doc Martin's been with the show for three years, since the very beginning, before she was the doc. She was just a gypsy fish biologist or something. And now she's a big-time professor in Kansas, and she's been published, and here's Doc Martin. Hi, Fish Nerd Nation. This is Doc Martin. Um, I don't have any super cool, awesome fish facts or anything like that for you today. I just wanted uh, to let you guys know about something really exciting that... I wanted to share with you guys. Um, I officially signed a contract this week, like less than 24 hours ago, um, for a laboratory manual. Uh, so who cares? There's lots of those, right? Uh, well, um, since you guys have been so diligently listening to me and all my shenanigans and geekery uh, for the past several years, if you've been some of the first listeners... Um, I thought I wanted to make my very first official announcement about this project to the Fish Nerd Nation. Um, so I worked with my co-author. Her name is Whitney Davidson. Um, and we have created this lab manual that is novel. So it, this type of thing currently does not exist 
in the world. Uh, we looked online and books, and we contacted multiple sources across the U.S. for a similar product, and we couldn't find anything. And so what we have done is we've made a laboratory manual um, for students that have severe visual impairments or total vision loss. Um, so when I worked at uh, my university, when I first started, um, I had some students come in that were blind and I didn't know what to do because I was brand new faculty. I've never had to deal with this before. And uh, when I tried to find resources uh, to adapt labs, like using microscopes and biodiversity and animal behavior, I learned quickly that there's just nothing out there, um, which kind of surprised me. It's 2017, you know? I mean, how is this not available? And uh, so Whitney, who's my, my co-author and my very good friend, we were chit-chatting, and I was kind of airing my grievances, if you will, and we hatched this idea. Um, so we just kind of started working on writing up and adapting the modules uh, on very common things that you have done in general biology labs and make that accessible um, to students with visual impairments. And the coolest thing about this is that all students within a laboratory class can complete the laboratory exercises in the same classroom setting and with the same expectations regarding academic conduct, regardless of their vision. So you can have a class with, you know, students that have no vision loss or students that have total vision loss or uh, a mixture of those. And the way that this is written is so all students can learn the same concepts and do the same things, um, which I think is really exciting. And uh, I always stand by my, I don't know, I, I think it's right. <laughs> Science is for everybody. Every single person if they have the motivation to do science, can do it. You can learn about it. You can read about it. You can, you can do it. It's not this you know, ivory tower nebulous cloud of fancy things. It, it's something that every single person can learn. And if you don't want to be a scientist, then every single person can learn to appreciate and understand science. Um, and that's kind of where this whole project came from, and I'm very excited to announce that I have signed official contract with the American Printing House for the Blind to complete this project by the end of this year. Um, then in 2018, I'll go into field testing, and I'll get uh, comments back from teachers all around the United States, and hopefully in maybe 2019, it will be on shelves um, and widely available throughout the U.S., which sounds crazy when I say that out loud. <laughs> so anyway, that is all for me. Just a short little snippet to keep you updated on all the crazy things that Doc Martin does. And I will catch you all on the flip side with some fish facts. Thanks. Bye. Congratulations, Doc. We look forward to st you sticking with us, even though you are a big time winner. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. R 
everything. It is. So congratulations. And maybe if she gets a book published, we will have her in the FN Book Club, and we'll know her when she was just Martin. We will. We will know Martin. when she was just the doc. Yeah, when she was just our Doc Martin. Regular old Doc Martin. Next up, Andrew Lewin from Speak Up with the F in Blue is going to join us and talk a little bit more fishy conservation. We've been working this segment into the show the last few weeks uh, to try to get our fish nerds to get more into the conservation mode. And since we don't do conservation talking as well as Andrew does, we thought we'd partner with the Speak Up for the Blue podcast. You can get that anywhere podcasts are found. Um, Jeff, you, you're, you're a fan of the show before you're part of the show yeah are you enjoying the transition of the show and where it's going right now do you like yeah i i really like the emphasis on the conservation because you know if we love fish and we love fishing then we should care about the system that provides us with this the i mean whether it's the the marine environments the river environments the lake environments you know a healthy ecosystem is you know yeah it's good for fishing it's just good for us in general. It's good for the health of the entire planet. And so I'm really glad that, you know, we've had, and I know for some time we've on this podcast, you've pushed the sustainable seafood mm-hmm. um, movement and, you know, you've learned some, some lessons. Oh, we get it wrong. Sometimes it's okay to be you wrong. You got it wrong. Yep. Yeah. You know, you got, you got called out on the Mako. And, oh, it's, uh, it's going to be hard because we're giving away another fishing trip with Captain Sean. And so we had to figure for something, something that something besides a Mako shark. Yeah, it was going to have to be something different. I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I really like the emphasis on the on the conservation, and the sustainability, and mm-hmm. you know, I think the climate change is a is a huge thing that we're all going to have to deal with, and I think it's going to affect fisheries tremendously. Well, I think fisheries um, affected probably first. You know, that water temperature is so important to fish, and it matters so. Yeah, I mean, if you fish for cold water fish species like trout and things like that, the the idea of everything warming up is does not. Bo- no, it's a nightmare. Yeah. So anyway, so this is Speak Up for the Blue, and if you haven't subscribed to the Speak Up for the Blue podcast and you want a podcast that really focuses on ocean conservation, um, even though it's Canadian, we like them. So- yeah, and I've, <laughs> I've subscribed to it, and I I listen to it. And I really enjoy it. Yeah, and and of course, um, and 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 they're happy to have us as part of their community, and uh, we're glad we're friends with them. So check it out. Hey, everybody, Andrew Lewin back again with your ocean news update here on the uh, Speak Up for F and Blue uh, segment here on the Fish News podcast. I'm glad to be back again, Clay. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, we're going to talk about three stories today, uh, three kind of quick ones, I guess, uh, or two longer, one quick one. Uh, but essentially what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about how bears are getting affected by climate change in their hunting skills. We're also going to talk about how fish are tracked using their DNA, a really cool method, new method of sampling fish. And uh, we're also going to talk about a shrimp named after Pink Floyd. Yes, that's right. Shrimp named after Pink Floyd. I'll tell you the story behind that. All here on the Speak Up for F and Blue segment on the Fish Nerds podcast. Let's get started. So we're going to start off with polar bears because that's up in my way, up in Canada, uh, in the north, of course, in Hudson Bay. There was a study conducted about polar bears in the way they hunt and how climate change is actually affecting the way they hunt. Now, polar bears, as you might as what you might know, I'm not sure if you know the the effect that polar bears are feeling, but I did a podcast last year. Uh, with Thea 
uh, Beshoff, who is a uh, a PhD, a Dr. Thea Beshoff. She uh, did a she did a podcast with me on how bears are affected not only by climate change but by um, by uh, mineral by by I guess pollutants in the air. And this uh, and if you want to hear the podcast, by, by all means, you can go ahead uh, speak up for blue dot com forward slash session 251 or just go on the on your podcast app and look for session or for episode 251 it's a really great podcast but in this one uh this article that i'm looking at in the independent uh uh, in the out of the uk they talk about uh, some of the uh, pcbs that have been found as pollutants that are weakening the male's penis bones i'm quoting that directly from the uh, the article to the point where they can actually snap off. That is disgusting, and that's gotta hurt. Um, so you know, polar bears are are feeling the effects of climate change. And most times when we talk about climate change, we talk about uh, you know lack of sea ice because polar bears are a marine mammal. They spend more than sixty percent of their time in the ocean, and they use sea ice. Uh, you know, whether it be icebergs or just ice drifts. They use them to rest after they swam for, you know, 700 kilometers or, you know, however far they're going. I think the longest they've, they've actually clocked a polar bear in the water is going for 700 kilometers. Um, but in this case, they're looking at winds and wind speed. So apparently polar bears actually smell seals, their food, their natural prey using light winds. So they'll actually walk into a wind and they'll take a couple of sniffs. And then they'll be able to smell the seal, I guess. They have that type of odor. And then they'll go and track those seals. Now, what researchers are worried about is climate change is supposed to increase that speed, that wind speed up in the Arctic. Uh, And this is up Hudson's Bay, so northern Ontario area uh, near Nunavut and uh, the territory. So, So what they're worried about is that if the wind is, the wind has to be just right. If it's too soft, then they won't be able to smell anything. The, the wind won't carry the smell of the seal. If it's too strong, the wind uh, will just, it'll, the smell will just bypass the polar bear, it won't be able to pick it up. So what they're worried about, that the wind has to be at just the right speeds. And in this article that I'm reading, it doesn't say the exact speed, but the wind has to be just the right speed for the, uh, for the polar bear to smell the, the, the seal. Now, it's, I, I kind of, uh, think about it as, you know, smelling wine. You know, if you have to have a good palate to smell the different components of a wine, and that's exactly what these polar bears are doing, but they depend on wind speed to smell the different components of the seal and what's good and what's not. Uh, and what this leads to is it leads to another hardship that uh, the polar bears will have to face. It is predicted that due to climate change, a third of the polar bears will be wiped out in 40 years. That's across the entire Arctic, their entire range. Um, now, of course, that's an estimate. If we do better with climate change, maybe that will be better um, in the future. But essentially what's happening, you've got lack of sea ice, you've got pollutants like PCBs that are snapping these poor things, penises off, and you've got winds that will increase and they won't be able to find food as easily as they have been before. This doesn't say, this is not saying that they can't adapt to it, um, to higher winds, but a lot of them already uh, they're an endangered species. A lot of them will will die because they won't be able to find food, or they'll drown because they can't rest on sea ice. So polar bears are in a little bit of trouble. This is just another article showing how they're in trouble. It's good to know this in, this information so that 
you know, we can understand how polar bears hunt, how polar bears feed, and how they survive and how they need to survive. And we're going to see how they do in, in, in the future, hopefully with climate change getting better and better. But at this point, the way governments are going with putting in pipelines and um, bringing back coal, it just, and I'm talking about Canada and the U.S., it just doesn't seem like this is going to happen. And Canada boasts one of the, the highest populations of polar bears, uh, especially in the Hudson's Bay area. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Hopefully, it, you know, we don't lose the third of the polar bears in 40 years. Um, but it looks like it's going to be that way with all the problems they're having. Anyway, off on that note, let's move to um, uh, the next story, which is a fish or fish that are being tracked using DNA, uh, quote unquote, fin prints left in the waters of New York. So normally when we when scientists measure fish to determine their population, their size and all this kind of stuff about fish populations uh, and which has to do with like a lot of different things, presence, absence. You're looking at whether they're there or not. You're looking at uh, how, you know, whether it's good for a fishery. Uh, you want to make sure you're not, uh, you know, you know, you're not overfishing, you're not underfishing, all that kind of stuff. Um, we usually use nets to, to gather the fish. Sometimes we put a little jolt of electricity if you're in the rivers in an electrofisher to actually get them to come, shock them to come to the top, um, which it doesn't harm the fish. Uh, if you just do a little shock and then you can take your samples from there. Um, but now there is a new way of getting fish or determining whether fish have been there or not. Um, and it's used the use of DNA. And so what's happening is when a fish is in a specific area, whether it be a river, a lake, or an ocean, it leaves um, stuff behind. Uh, and it could be just excrements from the fish itself. Um, it could be um, slime from the fins. Uh, it could be cells that, that get scraped if they're scraping on a rock or uh, on whatever it is that they're scraping on. And what happens is that leaves DNA in the water. So instead of sampling a fish, which could, be, which could oftentimes be fatal to the fish, uh, you sample with a bucket of water. And you take that sample. It costs $50 to, to process the sample. And then once you process the sample, you know what fish has been in that water or what fish DNA has been in that water. And what I love about this is, it's, one, it saves researchers a hell of a lot of money. Uh, two, uh, it allows citizen science projects to be done very easily. If you take a number of samples along a river at different points, say citizen science do, and they, they bag it and tag it, that water, and then they send it to the lab to be processed... You can have a really good idea of what fish are in or what fish DNA is in every river stream uh, or every river lake and maybe even coastal ocean. So it's really easy to, to do the sampling. Um, $50 is a little expensive to do the, the processing if you have too many, um, but at least you can get a good feel for what's in the water uh, and still relatively cheap. Now, if you think about it, to do a trawl to sample fish, you have to rent a boat, which could be five to $10,000 a day. Just to just to sample, so that's what we're looking at a lot of times for for fish. From for, so from a scientific methods um, area, you're looking at a very good uh, way of sampling. Now it does come with its setbacks um, in terms of there was uh, the Nile. This is this this study was a, from from Reuters and um, or this article is from Reuters, and they talked about sampling uh, the East River. 
and they noticed that there was one of the problems with this the sampling is they noticed there was uh, DNA from the Nile tilapia. And they're like, well, how is the Nile tilapia in New York? It's just impossible because there are no Nile tilapia in New York that have been found. And what the researchers are thinking is that uh, that's coming from excrements from humans from eating the Nile tilapia and then it just going through the sewer system and it being picked up in the water. Now, that's kind of gross in one way. Uh, the other way, it's kind of interesting to see what kind of DNA is flowing through uh, is flowing through the the East River and other rivers. It makes you think of what happens. You know that not all that stuff gets picked up in the sewage treatment plants, and that so some other DNA can get in. Uh, I know for a fact that this is a great methods. Uh, so it does come with some drawbacks, but it is a great methodology to find out if there are invasive species in the area. Um, to find out if they're if if they've been present or absent in a water body. So if you find their DNA, you're like, okay, hold on a second. You know, there could be Asian carp in an area. There could be um, some pe- people have used it uh, for frogs and wetlands. Um, as uh, in in I think it was in Paris or in France, where a bunch of specific frogs, a species of frogs that were being used in a farm for uh, the frogs' legs delicacy got out and into a, a, a wetland and it's become invasive. The American bullfrog is the species I was looking for. And it's damaging local wildlife after it escaped from farms. So they're look, trying to track them down. And they use DNA in the wetlands to determine whether they've been present or absent within a specific wet, wetland. Which is great to know. If you think about it, it's great to know. because Just because you don't see a specific species, whether it be invasive or not, in an area doesn't mean they haven't been there. And the DNA allows us to think that they've been there or, or kind of pinpoints where they've been. So that's a really good uh, way of detecting. Want to share that with you because I think it's, it's fun to share science stuff. Plus, it has to do with fish for you fish nerds, um, us fish nerds, I should say. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting way of sampling. So I'd love to know what you think. Uh, let, let Clay know uh, in, his, in his Facebook group because I, I think it's a cool thing to talk about. Now, the last, uh, the last story is kind of a fun story that I found on NPR. Uh, it's a shrimp that, you can, that kills with its sound, and it's named after Pink Floyd. And this has nothing to do with if you love or hate Pink Floyd and you think their music is garbage, which I don't know who would because Pink Floyd is probably one of the best bands and, and has one of the best followings in the world. Um, but this little guy, this shrimp, uh, is, uh, is, is kind of cool. He's named after Pink Floyd. He's, got, he's kind of like a pistol shrimp. Uh, his his uh, in a pistol shrimp, what they do is they open up their claws really slowly, and then they snap it so fast that it makes a really loud noise, like a pistol. And it can shock the fish around it or its prey around it, whether it be sh- other shrimp or or fish. Um, I think it is carnivores, and it will then it can allows it to jump on them and kill it and eat it. Uh, this sh- shrimp, however, has a little bit more power. So the Latin name, forgive me if I if I don't pronounce the first part right, is Sinalphius Pink Floydi. Pink Floydi. Okay, Sinalphius Pink Floydi. So you can tell why it's named after Pink Floyd. Um, and it can crack its, 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 uh, its big pink uh, claw at uh, 210 decibels, which is louder than a typical rock concert and loud enough to kill the small fish nearby. So it can actually kill fish, not just stun it. It can actually kill fish. Now, this story... Uh, it turns out that the reason why this shrimp is named after Pink Floyd, because the, the researchers at the Oxford, I believe it's the Oxford Museum, Oxford University Museum of Natural History, Dr. Sammy DeGrave, he's the one who named it. 
He named it because the uh, sh- the shrimp claw is pink. And it goes by a story that when Pink Floyd came over to the U.S., it's, an Amer- it's a U.K. band, when Pink Floyd came over to the U.S., the U.S., um, the, the reporters thought that the band, namer, the band members were named Pink, or one of them was named Pink. So one reporter asked, you know, which one of you is Pink? And, of course, that was a bit of a joke. Uh, and they actually put it into one of their uh, songs, Have a Cigar, and one of the references is the line, uh, by the way, which one of you is Pink? Is the is the line from "Have a Cigar" the the song? So that's how it was named by. But a lot of people thought it was named by um, named after Pink Floyd because there was a concert that Pink Floyd put on. Uh, I think it was uh, I forget which which concert it was part of. Uh, but in during the concert, they lit up like this massive octopus in a lake, and uh, it was it and and there was like there was um, uh, what do you call it? There was um, Oh shoot! Dry ice, so it looked like you know, kind of like it just came out of nowhere, and um, and they and the music was so loud during the concert that they that all the fish died in the lake, or that's what they initially thought. So they so they thought at first they thought the shrimp was named after that, but apparently uh, the 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 Doctor Sammy DeGrave had no idea of that story. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of interesting that that that's what happened. But if, eventually people thought that. You know, maybe the dry ice that was dumped into the lake, as well as the explosions that went on to light up or to uh, to start the blowing up the said octopus that was that were in the bottom of the lake, um, maybe that killed the fish. But we're, but they don't know. Uh, but anyway, it's it's kind of a cool story because uh, this fish is named after uh, you know Pink Floyd, and and the name. Uh, I'll read it one more time. The name is uh, Sinalphus Pink Floydi, and it it can kill fish with its loud uh, claw, opening and closing. It's kind of like I guess it's a type of uh, pistol shrimp, which is what I told you before. Um, and then there's another species of fish. They're, they're not the only. It's not the only species that was named after a band. There was another fish uh, that the grave and his colleagues have named. Um, it's a species of shrimp actually named. Elephantus Jaggeray, after the Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger. So there's a a big influence in rock music in naming shrimp species, uh, especially coming out of the the um, out of the the UK. Uh, what is it? The Oxford University Museum of Natural History. So kind of, I thought that was an interesting article to share on that. Uh, but anyway, that is the end of uh, your conservation news update from the Speak Up for F and Blue segment. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Lewin. I really appreciate you guys listening to this. I hope these are fun articles to share. hope you guys get a lot out of it. Let Clay know if you do, uh, and I will do more and more. And thank you very much, Clay, for allowing me to be on the Fish Nerds podcast. It is absolutely uh, a treat for me to do this, uh, and I love doing it. So have a great rest of the podcast guys enjoy your episode and i'll chat with you later happy conservation so that's it you've listened to a couple of fish nerds a whole bunch of fish nerds when you definitely should have been fishing we'd like to thank our families and everyone else in our life yes. for that matter for supporting us while we podcast go on fishing quests and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do if you'd like to support the fish nerds you can go to patreon.com and search for fish nerds and help us crowdfund this podcast Hey, special thanks to Jeff Danielson. Jeff, how can people find you? Um, Facebook mainly. I am not a Twitter guy. The 
Twitter has descended into a morass of terribleness, and I've <laughs> left it. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, but you can find, find you me. on on the Fish Nerds Podcast group. You're very active in that. Yes, I'm very active there. And if if you get in touch with me there, I can hook you up with my Instagram. Guess what? Lots of pictures of fish. <laughs> and uh, those are really the two main social media I do. Um, I'm on Goodreads as well. And you can even go to the website of the library I work for, and I've accumulated some reading lists there, too. Fantastic. And special thanks to Diana's Bath Salts for the new jingle, and uh, special, really big thanks to um, Nick uh, of the Bath Salts for mixing the podcast for us. Andrew Lewin from Speak Up with the Blue Podcast. Thank you. And Doc Martin, nice job. Yeah, good job. Great job. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerd. Spawn early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. Mm-hmm.